Welcome to episode 15 of History of the Marine Corps, The Marines Help Out General Washington, part 2. In our last episode, we started to dig into the beginning of the Trenton Campaign. Samuel Nicholas had the responsibility of staffing the four newly built frigates with Marines. We delve into some of the Marines recruited by Samuel Nicholas and who would be leading the Marines on each ship. Robert Mullen was one of these men, and we spend a few minutes going over the life of this notable Marine. During this week's episode, we discuss the Battle of Trenton. It was Christmas time, and General Washington was guarding Philadelphia from the British forces opposite of his men on the Delaware River. With the snowstorm, lack of intelligence, being outnumbered three to one, and most of his men's enlistment expiring in a week, General Washington attacks the Hessians at Trenton. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. During our last episode, our focus shifted from Marines' participation in conflicts against the British Navy to assisting General George Washington in his battle against the British Army. At the time, the success of General Washington was doubtful. The Colonial Army was outnumbered by more than three to one, and they were exhausted from fighting and from the cold weather. With no other option, Washington continued to retreat back to Philadelphia. To compensate for the lack of men, he requested that sailors from the Delaware and the Washington, and also the Marines under Major Nicholas, be placed under his charge. General Howe, commander of British forces, followed Washington in his retreat and set up camp stretching along the Delaware River. To counter any possible attacks, Washington did the same thing and deployed his forces along the Delaware River to the south. With General Washington preoccupied with the British Army, General Israel Putnam, an American general, also known as Old Putt, helped build up the defenses in Philadelphia. Putnam received word from a local messenger that the HMS Roebuck was anchored in the bay and blocking access to sea. Naturally, with the British Army on the Delaware and a 44-gun 5th-rate anchor nearby, the locals started to get terrified. The Marine Committee sent their fast sailing ships to warn any inbound merchant ships of the looming threat. Old Putt was placed in charge of Philadelphia's defenses and started to organize explosives to destroy and burn the American ships, should the British overrun the city. The Randolph and the Hornet were also ordered to prevent the British from passing the Delaware. Congress issued an attractive bounty to the officers, sailors, and Marines on board the Randolph. They stated that when the mission is complete and General Putnam has no further need for the Randolph to defend the city, Congress will reward Captain Biddle and his men with a present of $10,000. Considering the pay for the senior Marine was $30 per month, this bounty was extremely attractive. Once Congress issued this bounty, they left for Baltimore and handed the keys to the kingdom to General Washington. They put him in charge of all things relative to the department and to the operations of war. However, not everyone in Congress headed south. Robert Morris stayed behind, and even though he understood Old Putt's decision of destroying ships if the British should overrun Philadelphia, 
he didn't want to see the Continental Fleet go up in flames. The amount of effort, resources, and money Congress invested in American vessels was significant, and the fleet was extremely valuable in defending against the British military. He met with General Putnam and suggested he send the Randolph and the Hornet to sea. Putnam wholeheartedly agreed with this suggestion, and Morris prepared the ships by supplying gunpowder and ammunition while Captain Biddle headed to the local prison for additional men. The Randolph would be short-staffed, but Morris ordered the frigate to sea, stating that the number of marines and sailors on board was adequate to work the ship and that he would rather sail the ship with an understaffed crew than have her anchored in port and be destroyed. The Randolph received orders to sea on December 13th, but wasn't given any special instructions on what to do. Morris did not specify where the ship should sail, or even if they should advance on the HMS Roebuck. He left that decision up to Captain Biddle. The only instructions Morris provided was to man the ships, and suggested Biddle should head to the best place to find merchantmen and transports without encountering the British. Only after the ship was manned was he to return to hunt down enemy ships headed towards New York. Captain James Nicholson, commander of the Hornet, received different instructions. The Hornet already had a full crew, and she was ordered to head to South Carolina, then to Martinique for more supplies. For those of you who missed episode 13, the reprisal heads to sea and support from the French, Martinique is an island in the Caribbean and a colony of France. During the episode, we discussed a naval battle between American and British forces and how the French at Martinique helped out the Americans. The next day, on December 14th, the Randolph and the Hornet set sail to fulfill their orders. They left Fort Island and headed to Hog Island. Once they arrived, a messenger had a request, stating that the two ships head to Chester and wait for a merchant ship headed towards France. While the two ships waited at Chester for the merchant ship, a pilot boat from Philadelphia showed up with a message from Morris. Morris ordered both ships to return to Philadelphia. The Roebuck now had reinforcements and was partnered with the Falcon and two bomb vessels. Bomb vessels are specialized ships designed for bombarding. The Randolph and the Hornet would be in substantial danger if they continued on their path. The Delaware, another American frigate placed under Washington's charge, was also at risk, and Morris asked she return to Philadelphia as well. The Delaware was sent back to Philadelphia immediately, and Major Nicholas was directed to gather a group of Marines for service on board the Delaware. Nicholas drafted men from each of the three companies originally staffed for manning the frigates and he created a 20-man detachment. They were placed under Lieutenant Daniel Henderson and Lieutenant David Love. Back on the Delaware, the loss of 20 Marines from Cadwallader's command went virtually unnoticed, since there was very little activity going on between the Americans and the British. The Marines partnered with the Army and helped out with defensive duties. They provided one corporal, eight privates, and a company commander as main guard. The men were rotated out on a regular basis, and the purpose of the guard force was to guard the western bank of the Delaware and collect and report on intelligence gathered. They also had the responsibility of harassing the enemy so they wouldn't get too comfortable hanging out by the river. Even with the main guards patrolling the riverbanks, General Washington was in a stressful situation. 
he wasn't sure if the British were planning on crossing the Delaware for an attack. So finding the most appropriate location to position his army was pretty difficult. Even if he did have information regarding an attack from the British, Washington did not have the manpower or resources to stop the attack. If that wasn't enough, December 31st was just around the corner, which is when his whole army's enlistment was set to expire. Washington was at a serious risk of losing his army and potentially America's independence. He had no other option and had to attack. The commander of the British Army, General Howe, and his staff headed to New York for the winter. His remaining troops were spread out along the Delaware. This was a benefit for Washington and his army. A plan needed to be made quickly. There was significant risk in attacking the British. Not only were the Americans outnumbered, but they would need to cross an icy river in the middle of winter just to reach the enemy. This is very difficult to do quietly. If this plan didn't work, America could lose the majority of their military. On December 24th, General Washington developed a plan and communicated his idea with his commanders. After very little discussion, the plan was adopted. The focus of this attack would be Trenton. Washington's plan was to separate his army into three divisions and cross the river in three places. Brigadier General Cadwallader commanded one division, which included his men and Marines. Colonel Daniel Hitchcock would take his brigade of Rhode Island Continentals, and Captain Thomas Rodney would command a company of militiamen from Delaware. Captain Rodney and his Delaware militiamen were to cross the river near Bristol. After they crossed the river, he would meet up with Colonel Samuel Griffin and his men, who were also across the river in New Jersey, and head north to meet up with Washington and Trenton. General Ewing was north of General Cadwallader, and he was to cross the river at Trenton Ferry. Once across, he would seize the Assunpink Bridge so the Hessians couldn't escape the attack from the main advancing party. I'll try not to go too far into a tangent, but to quickly catch everyone up on Hessians, Hessians were German troops hired by the British as auxiliary forces during the Revolutionary War. The British hired around 30,000 troops to help fight the Americans, and most of those troops were from the German state of Hesse Castle. During the Revolutionary War, Germany wasn't a unified country yet, but a collection of states. Supplementing military forces by hiring a military force was common during this time, and Hesse Castle's major export was soldiers. The American Revolutionary War was very profitable with that German state, and the payment received for their services was equal to around 13 years' worth of tax revenue. This payment allowed the state's prince, Landgraf Friedrich II, to lower the taxes in the state while still keeping the spending high. He developed public work projects, administered a public welfare system, and encouraged education. This state had a military mindset, and boys were required to register for military service when they turned 7 years old. Men ages 16 through 30 were required to annually check in with a government official for possible enlistment in their military, if there was a need for military service. If you were unemployed, bankrupt, dropped out of school, or a servant without a master, you were considered expendable and could be forced into service whenever needed. The Hessian culture was focused on strong discipline and punishments were harsh. However, there was an immense pride in service amongst the officers and enlisted. 
Hessian soldiers were also compensated very well for their service. The soldier and his family were exempt from some taxes, were paid more than farmers, and were eligible for proceeds gathered from captured military property and sacking civilian property. It was illegal for the Hessians to plunder, but officers usually turned a blind eye. Americans despised the Hessians for looting their property, and the ransacking caused many neutral Americans to support the colony's decision for independence. The Declaration of Independence also noted the Americans' disgust with the Hessians' plundering and condemned the king for, quote, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances and cruelty, and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. After the war, around 3,000 Hessians refused to return to Europe and made the New World their new home. Now back to the war. Washington controlled the 3rd and Main Division crossing the Delaware. He had about 2,400 men, most of whom were involved with the original retreat from New Jersey to Philadelphia. Washington would cross the river at McConkie's Ferry, which was located around 9 miles north of Trenton. After he crossed, he would head south to Trenton for the attack. Once Washington's and Ewing's divisions took Trenton, they would wait for Cadwallader and all three would push towards the British at Princeton and Brunswick. On December 25th, the Americans prepared for the attack, while the 1400 Hessians celebrate Christmas Day. The Hessians were commanded by Colonel Johann Gottlieb Rall, and rumor has it that he and his men were celebrating Christmas with feasts and alcohol. On the opposite side of the river, the Americans were gathering the men who would cross the Delaware that night. While the Americans were preparing for their attack, a snowstorm started that would delay their departure. Around 1800 that night, Washington's men started to board the boats and headed across the river. Boat after boat was launched, carrying the Americans across the Delaware River. The snowstorm caused a buildup of river ice, and the planned time of the entire division crossing the river was delayed by three hours. By four the following morning, every man made it across the river and headed towards Trenton. Unfortunately for the Americans, the storm grew in intensity, and Washington had to stop his division about four miles from McConkie's Ferry so they could recover and adjust to the storm. Before the formation began their march again, Washington divided them into two groups. The first group was commanded by General Nathaniel Green and took the left flank through Pennington Road. The second group was commanded by General Arthur St. Clair and headed down the River Road. When they were about a mile from Trenton, General Green's corps split again and created a semicircle around the town. If you're a visual person like me, I have a battle map up on historyofthemarinecorps.com that will help with visualizing the battlefield. The advancing American forces picked off a few unassuming Hessian sentries north of Trenton. This was the beginning of the battle, and the Americans were now advancing towards Trenton for the main attack. When the orders were received to attack, artillery commanders Captain Thomas Forrest and Captain Alexander Hamilton sighted in their six field pieces towards King and Queen Streets and started firing. This came as a complete surprise to the Hessians. In a state of confusion, 
they launched two volleys towards the direction of artillery and retreated. Hessian commander, Colonel Rawl, gathered his men at the edge of town. He ordered everyone back into formation, fixed bayonets, and headed towards the Americans. Rawl's original plan was a bayonet charge. However, as his men advanced on their original position, Americans already controlled this area. The Hessians continued to move through the town, but the Americans already fortified the town and were positioned in multiple buildings. They fired at the Hessians through windows and doorways and picked off the Hessians one by one. Colonel Rawl could do very little about it. He ordered his men to attack the Americans, but it was impossible to organize a charge since the Americans were scattered throughout the town and firing from random buildings. With little option, Rawl ordered a retreat of his men, but they had nowhere to go. General Ewing and his men were waiting at the Assunpink Bridge for this exact reason, and they stopped Colonel Rawl's men from fleeing. The Hessians retreated to a local orchard at the southeast of town. Shortly after Rawl gave his orders to retreat to the orchard, he was struck by two rounds on his side. He was carried to a nearby house but would eventually die from his wounds. Rawl's death would cause panic amongst his men. They continued to head north through the orchard but were welcomed by additional American forces. There was no way out, and the Hessians eventually surrendered. There were a second unit of Hessians, led by Major von de Chow, who were retreating as well. They also tried to pass through the Assenpink Bridge, but were welcomed by Ewing's defense and driven back. Eventually, the second unit of Hessians would also be forced to surrender to the Americans. The beginning of the campaign was going very well for Washington and his men. The Americans had one killed and three wounded during this battle, while the Hessians had 22 killed, 83 wounded, and 891 taken prisoner. About 40% of the Hessian forces escaped to either Bordentown or Princeton. However, despite this success, the two other crossings to the south were disasters. Around dusk, General Cadwallader readied his troops to cross the Delaware at Neshaminy Ferry. While Colonel Timothy Matlack's Pennsylvania militiamen led the march, Major Nicholas and his Marines brought up the rear. When they arrived at Neshaminy Ferry, they found the river filled with ice from the freezing snowstorm. They decided to abandon that location and headed to Dunk's Ferry a few miles down the road. The Marines and Army boarded boats at Dunk's Ferry and headed towards their destination. Their arrival was significantly delayed due to the ice in the river and the additional trek to the ferry. The advance party was able to make it across, however, the storm continued to increase and Cadwallader did not want to risk his artillery crossing the river and ordered all of his men back to Pennsylvania. After Washington's victory at Trenton, he headed back to Pennsylvania to drop off the prisoners. He found Robert Morris still trying to get the Randolph out to sea. Captain Biddle did not want to set sail without a full staff, and after getting recalled from his recruiting mission, he never left port. Robert Harris was livid about the situation, and on December 29, 1776, he wrote a letter to Richard Henry Lee stating the following. You cannot conceive how I am vexed and mortified to find after the deal of pains and trouble I have taken that the Randolph frigate is still at the piers and ice making in the river, 
But the officers of that ship show great reluctance to go away without being completely manned, and that is not possible. She might have been at sea before now had they exerted themselves for that purpose, but they had constantly in view to wait for more men. This has its foundation in a noble principle, which has hindered me from complaining to the Marine Committee. Although I have scolded the officers like a bitter whore for their dilatoriness, they say they wish to fight and not to run. I tell them they must run until they can fight. However, with Washington's victory at Trenton, the threat to Philadelphia was removed, and the Randolph was no longer needed to set sail. Next week, the Americans will head to Princeton with Marines in tow. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we follow Washington through New Jersey as he faces the British. We also hear from General Cadwallader as he explains to Washington why he and his troops didn't make it across the Delaware. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.